We often hear about tree planting to draw down carbon from the atmosphere, but blue carbon sinks could also be a solution for removing CO2. Marine sediments provide the largest store of organic carbon on Earth, and scientists say we should be looking to the sea as we plan our way out of the climate crisis. University of Otago Senior Research Fellow in Marine Ecology, Rebecca McLeod, has written a piece on this for The Conversation. She says a key area of potential for New Zealand could be fjordlands. And Rebecca joins us on the line now. Hi, Rebecca. Hey, Jesse. How are you? Good. Nice to talk to you today. Can you explain the concept of blue carbon? Yeah, well, I guess um, we think a lot about, about green carbon usually when it comes to trees photosynthesizing and drawing down atmospheric carbon and locking them into trees. Um, blue carbon is where we're looking at carbon that is absorbed by the seas and um, and essentially sort of locked away um, generally in the marine sediments um, for long periods of time. What is marine sediment? Just all the, the mud and, um, and, and uh, sediments on the seafloor. So extending from our wetlands, like right out into the abyss, into the deep sea. The good thing about trees is you can plant more of them, but can you create more marine sediment? Well, no, we're not, we're not talking about creating marine sediment. We're probably talking more about um, understanding the power of marine sediment to mm-hmm. harness carbon and then making sure that we're protecting those stores of carbon that are on the seafloor. Um, and perhaps there are ways that we could actually um, enhance those carbon stores in the future as well. So there might be things that we're doing at the moment that are um, putting those those big stores of carbon at risk. Um, and there's the potential that if you start to mess with them, that you could actually turn those stores around and make them into sources of carbon. Um, and that's something that's sort of being shown around the world at the moment with um Activities that disturb the seafloor, like um, like trawling of of the fisheries, for example, and um, and ocean mining, um, can actually disturb the sediments, and that leads to oxygen getting into those sediments and actually um, reoxidizing the carbon that is locked into the sediments back into CO two, and then that can go back into the atmosphere. Is it hard to measure this stuff? Hard to measure how much carbon has either been released or sequestered? Well, I guess. It- um, at, a, at a sort of broader level, we've we've got this amazing um, resource of incredibly talented um, atmospheric scientists in New Zealand that are using atmospheric measurements to look at fluxes of carbon sort of into and out of environments um, around the country. Um, but then we can look at a much finer scale if we get like our hands dirty and get into the mud. We can actually look at sort of what rates um, the sediment is accumulating and this organic carbon is getting locked away into the seafloor. Where do fjords fit in? Well, they, as I've described in the article, are the hottest of all of these these hot spots. So um, we they really they really pack a big punch. I mean, um, on a global scale, temperate fjords like we have here in New Zealand, where we've got trees growing on the sides of the fjords, um, they are only about 0.1 percent of the Earth's surface. Um, but they are um, they're sinking an enormous amount of carbon, and um, of all of the um, all of the marine sediments around the world, it's actually the, the fjords that are the most productive in terms of locking away carbon. Um, so even though they're a very small area, they, they really do um, sequester the most carbon. Why does it work so well? 
Well, and it, it, there's a, a few different reasons, but um, they're kind of like a big sediment trap in the fjord. So mm. if you were to drain all of the water out of fjordland, what you'd see is that the, at the entrances or kind of like the, the seaward part of the fjords, they actually have these um, these shallow areas called sills. Um, and uh, from when the glaciers were in the fjords, back before um, they were filled with seawater, the glaciers were pushing down the valleys and they ended up pushing a sort of terminal moraine up at the um, entrances to the fjords. And then as the sea level rose, the water sort of tipped over those um, sills and came and flooded the fjords. Um, and what those um, those sills, which remain there today, um, they kind of act like a big plug. So the sediment um, comes in and settles in the fjords and it doesn't get washed out to sea and lost into the abyss um, like other coastal areas do. Um, but the other thing about Fjordland is we obviously, in the, in the marine environment, you get lots of um, carbon fixation through um, marine algae photosynthesising and catching carbon that way, the way that land plants do, um, and that settles down to the seafloor. But in Fjordland, we also have this extra input of organic carbon from the rainforest. Um, the, the rainforest there, you know, the extensive rainforest mm. on really, really steep land. Um, and because we have such enormous amounts of rain and really high levels of seismic activity, earthquakes, um, we end up with heaps of this organic material from the forest being dumped in as well um, into the base of the fjords. So we get a really high rate of sedimentation, um, which locks that carbon away um, pretty, we think, permanently. Yeah, and... Am I right that recently you found that Fjordland's carbon sink is actually much greater than previously thought? Yes, well, there were some atmospheric scientists um, from the Carbon Watch program that um, that were trying to sort of reconcile the carbon budget over New Zealand, like where's the carbon cut, where's it being emitted, where's it being sort of removed. And they found a sort of gap over Fjordland where um, I guess scientists until that point had thought that these big old forests, these big old virgin forests, um, weren't actually that efficient anymore at removing carbon from the atmosphere. Um, but they found that something like 10 to 20% of New Zealand's annual emissions are actually being absorbed by Fiordland, um, which has made us look to the sea, you know, and now that we're understanding on a global level the importance of fjords for sequestering carbon, um, we think that the secret is actually hidden in the bottom of these fjords. So that's what this current research programme um, with Otago University and GNS Science is looking at, is um, how big is that carbon sink exactly? Um, what what are the risks to it as the climate changes um, and, and what can we do to protect it and possibly restore it for the future? Yeah, so so we can't add to it, but we can protect it and make sure that it's doing its job as well as possible. What does that look like practically? Well, I mean, Fjordland is, is, has a pretty high level of protection on a global scale. I mean, um, we've got really good management measures in place already, unlike some parts of the world where there's bottom trawling happening and fish farming and deforestation and all sorts of things happening um, in the land catchment. Um, in Fjordland, you know, it's a pretty intact system, but, but there are some um, interesting um, things going on with, with freshwater management. Um, we have the, the hydroelectric power station that pumps... Um, pumps fresh water into Doubtful Sound and um, we're looking, our results will be able to tell us whether um, that input of fresh water has actually altered the ability of Doubtful Sound Partia to absorb carbon, um, which would, if it, if it is, is the case, would lead to some interesting questions around um, just sort of how 
how clean and green that energy production from that hydro mm. station is. Um, but also, you know, as the climate changes and ocean circulation changes, um, we may find that that carbon sink becomes more vulnerable um, because it's reliant at the moment on the, the waters deep in the fjord being really low in oxygen. Mm. Um, so changing ocean circulation could put that at risk as well. Apparently Scotland's doing quite a lot in this space. Yeah, they're, from, they're, they're really breaking some ground um, in, in sort of taking the science and making some really, really good policy and management decisions. Um, I think um, it's difficult at the moment because when we're looking at um, climate mitigation measures, um, and particularly with regards to like removing carbon from the atmosphere, we're very much focused on things that will fit within to our emissions trading scheme, like planting pine trees, for example. Right. Um, whereas when we're looking at these blue carbon stores, there's so many other benefits to protecting them that go beyond carbon sequestration. Um, so if you're looking to um, to further protect or restore an area, it's got huge um, biodiversity uh, improvements as well. So, um, so what they've been doing in Scotland is saying, you know, looking beyond the carbon or, or taking into account, you know, the value of these areas for carbon, let's also consider the biodiversity gains and use those in our decision making. So they have gone and um, put in some highly protected marine areas, which essentially ban bottom trawling from areas that they know are really good carbon stores. Um, even though the, the science isn't 100% there yet, um, they're sort of working on that precautionary approach, I guess, and saying, well, let's do this now and then um, we'll, the proof will be in the pudding. You're suggesting that the ETS, the Emissions Trading Scheme, is quite transactional. You're just counting um, counting numbers up or down, right, and you're not looking at the context of other environmental benefits. Yeah, and I mean, when you're looking... Um, at, let's say pine forest because that's our main sort of emissions removal tool at the moment is um as pine forest it's it's kind of really predictable you know you plant a tree you know it will grow this fast and sequester this much carbon over time and therefore you can provide a, a put a price on it mm. um but when it comes to the marine environment the, the challenge is that the carbon that's getting fixed whether it's by um marine algae or by inputs of forest material like we're seeing in fieldland um it, the carbon doesn't sort of remain in place, so it gets fixed in one area and then it ends up somewhere, might be out in the deep sea. And it's just a lot harder to really quantify that and measure it in a, in a robust enough way that you could apply a, a carbon credit pricing to it, for example. So we think that we need to be looking broader than just the ETS um, and that if we do that, that we've got some really big gains that we could make here in terms of protecting these sensitive um, marine ecosystems and environments um, that would have a real impact on our total emissions budget in New Zealand. Great stuff. You're a fantastic communicator, Rebecca. Really appreciate your time today. Thanks so much. 